0: This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show, the award winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris.
1: Hi, thank you for joining us. My name is Bruce Norris, and today our special guest is John Burns. John Burns owns a company, uh, John Burns Consulting has for many years. He consults for many of the large real estate companies in the country. Whether you're a large builder or your hedge fund, John Burns should have your ear, to be honest with you. I really uh, appreciate his approach. When we have spoken privately, uh, even though he knows an awful lot, he's always more concerned about what he doesn't know, and that's always impressed me. So, John, uh, by the way, thank you for always sharing your time with us at iSurvive Real Estate, and welcome to our radio show. Oh, that's a
0: good segue, Bruce, because on these shows, I usually learn more from you than you learn from me. So
1: (laughs) I love doing this. I appreciate that. You know, I was looking at your website, and one of the things that you kind of – it was just a niche probably that emerged by necessity, but you ended up negotiating large blocks of assets, right, for companies that were in trouble. So you were kind of the negotiating arm that made that all all work out. Yeah, when times get tough in real estate, we flourish.
0: And it's because a lot of new money comes in to take advantage of it or recapitalize it and doesn't know the first thing about the industry. And so we can help them out. So our, our business I, is more cyclical. When, when housing is really boring, that's when we're not doing so well. <laughs>
1: Well, that's an interesting thought. Now, one of the things that I read was one of the negotiations where you you worked on it and it was better for the company not to buy it. So you probably helped them make sure. uh, save a fortune not doing what they thought was going to be a smart idea.
0: Yeah, so I, one of the things I think or I hope makes us different is uh, we don't do anything on contingency. We have no biases. I don't even allow any of our employees to buy or invest in stocks or in real estate other than their own house so we can call it like it is and um in fact we just worked on a deal even in good times that's the case it was a huge deal uh where we said well here's the revenue forecast and they, our client said well that doesn't support the price and i said well then you just got the answer and <laughs> they walked <laughs> uh and the guy that bought this company um it's not going very well it's publicly traded so i won't
1: disclose who it is but yeah. Um, well, you know we've, that's we've been wrong plenty of times too. Oh yeah, but you know what? That's going to happen. I mean that no matter what you you've tried to figure out. Sometimes you look at well, I thought prices were going to go down this year, and I I said that yeah. prior to the coronavirus. So, I I am still a little scratching my head about the reaction of the marketplace. I don't I don't know how you feel about. The real estate market's reaction. I in the spring I, I heard an interview that you did with um, I forget who it was, but it was around April, and it was seemed like there was some concern, and you were trying to make sure your clients were more afraid than giddy. And uh, man, I'd have been I'd have been right there with you just because of the uncertainty. And then you know right before you know in the last hour, I've just taken a look at some statistics year over year. Um, I know the price is up, but what really kind of surprised me that I had looked at in a while was the volume is up. That I didn't expect. Uh, most of my home builder clients are telling me they're
0: now ahead of their pro forma for this year in terms of volume after
1: seeing probably an 80% decline in sales for a month. <laughs> right. I mean, there was that hole where you thought, okay, whenever I saw a month over month sales gain or price gain, you know, I just wrote that off as, of course, there was nothing there but now you're talking year over year gains um that's a bigger deal so i'm i guess i'm kind of surprised i know i know interest rates are great but that to me is that translates to affordability and affordability's been much higher for for instance in california for years than it than at a at a normal peak you know so i've always looked at real estate in california as more affordable than it can get so i always thought Okay, why are we only selling 400,000 houses a year when we're at 30 some percent affordability? I was always concerned about that thinking well something is causing sales not to occur. So I I thought when this stuff happened I really thought that would be a, a bigger problem than it's turned out and I don't you know I didn't look at the new home statistics. It's hard it's hard for California to build new affordable homes, so I, I doubt the volume of new home sales in California has exploded as much as maybe across the country that's probably going on. Yeah, and even today, California is not as strong as the rest of the country. Um, yeah, you can't, you, you can't get a yes answer on something that's large. Um, this is actually a crazy story, but I know a piece of land that's been kind of in an option stage for a decade, and the, and the buyer trying to get whatever he wants approved has been releasing a quarter of a million dollars a year for 10 years, and it's still not going. You kind of go, holy cow, that's that's pretty yeah. crazy. So the very, first, uh, the very first master
0: plan community study I did in, in Northern LA County was in 1989, 8,500 lots, and there's still no homes on that master plan community <laughs> because
1: of all the things you just said. Wow. Well, you know, at some 30, point you just 31 go. Thirty-one years later. Yeah, yeah you just kind of go. Okay, you win. We'll go build somewhere else. <laughs> that's that's not that hard. Uh, when you well,
0: you, you know, know, you you mentioned that, but a lot of the builders, some some have left the state, and others uh, have been allocating all their capital elsewhere. And what they have left in California so is a very very small part of their business. For exactly yeah. and and there's they're so afraid of additional regulation and additional taxes and um, they're like I just can't make
1: it work here the risk is not worth the reward. I think the biggest problem for me you know and now you and I talked off air before I've moved to Florida but one of the biggest concerns for me being an entrepreneur in California and I still own a business there and I and I will but I I like to know the rules of engagement before I participate and I like to feel like I participate if in fact those rules are gonna change. And I have stopped feeling that way in California. I feel like rules are basically mandated without my consent or even vote. And that's problematic for me. Yeah, and that's becoming national now too.
0: I mean, you, you know, a rental contract now can be overwritten by the federal government says you can't evict people. And there's, you know, a mortgage contract can now be overwritten and says if people stop paying their mortgage, you just have to let them not keep not paying for the next six months. It's it's like contracts don't mean anything anymore.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny because I I moved into Lakewood Ranch. The first person I met across the street was a New York a retired New York attorney, and he brought he brought that subject up, and I said I said okay, well I'm a, I own rentals, and when this occurred, the first thought would of mine would be that I would sit down and talk with the people that rented my property and if if they legitimately had a, a problem they they owned a restaurant that couldn't open for three months, we'd work something out. I mean, I would just do that. But his opinion was very different. He wanted to have that mandated, you know, and that's that's the difference. I, as an entrepreneur, I would like that to be. My choice, but maybe maybe we're not viewed as a very reasonable group that would do the right thing. I I don't know, but yeah. when you do when you do cross that line and tell me, okay, I thought I had this these rights, but I don't, it makes me hesitant to participate. That's exactly what that does.
0: And I don't think people
1: appreciate that.
0: No, matters. you're totally right. No, and, you know, they and don't. they and they regulate for the. I think they regulate for. Um, the bad behavior
1: of the minority and the majority pays the price. Exactly. It seems, it seems like this book's been around a lot longer when you wrote big shifts ahead. I know it took you a long time and a lot of hours to, to write, but I read it in one day, which is not an easy read, obviously, because it's pretty, pretty involved, but I really thought you landed on a square that was really important. Um, Like instead of having the baby boom generation be so long, you had uh, the achievers in the 40s and the innovators in the 50s. How did did you guys decide to divide the generations the way you did?
0: As we were doing all the historical study, it was just very clear to me that, hey, somebody born in 1950 and somebody born in 1960 are both baby boomers. But man, have their lives been different and things impacting them at different times and so we broke it down. We started looking at it by year, and we said this is too micro, uh, but clearly boomers, which is 17 or 19 years long, depending on how your definition is, is just way too broad. We settled on breaking it down by decade just because all, all of a sudden, you can compare 10-year periods to 10-year periods. Everybody knows what decade they're born. It just it simplified things a lot, and uh, that's. That's one of the challenges all decision makers and all investors have is trying to take all the confusion that's out there in the world and boil it down to something that's a little more simple to make a decision. So that's why we did it that way.
1: What was interesting after a while, it seemed like it was pretty much a dominant block of 40, 40 million new people a decade.
0: It, it, that was amazing to me. I did not realize that because we had a yeah. baby boom in the bus. But so much of that bust in the '70s was later filled in by people born in the 1970s in another country that moved here. Uh uh-huh. Twenty-three, twenty-three percent of people born in the 1970s were born in another country. You're right. It It was. There was every decade was 40 to 46 million in size, from 1940 all the way through 2000. That's not that big of a
1: boom and a bust. <laughs> no, the. One of the groups that's uh, interesting named the Sharers, uh, they were born in the 80s, and they're now between 30 and 40. What are some of their main characteristics?
0: Uh, well, they, we called them the Sharers because they invented the sharing economy. Uh, their, their main thing they had in common was that they graduated from college right when the Great Recession hit. So they got off to some a, a really tough start, a lot of them, or they just graduated a few years earlier. But, you know, they got a really bad rap. People calling them millennials is kind of like they were deadbeats and things. And really, actually, if you look at what they did, they just they pivoted. Hey, you know what? I get along with my parents. Um, I can live with my parents because it saves money and there's nothing wrong with that. And the boomers were looking down on them while at the same time their own adult kids were in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and they said, you know, I don't need to buy a prom dress. I can rent it and share it. And, And that's the group that invented Airbnb and Uber and all these sharing economy, big, great companies who came out of, Hey, why this, they looked at the world and said, "Why do you have to own everything that's financially stupid?"
1: And it was a
0: it was a big shift.
1: Well, now, how does that impacted housing since they are now in that they're kind of in that main yeah. buying category?
0: Well, how that's impacted housing is they delayed their home buying decisions uh, and um, so and they're the most educated generation ever. So you know they're having kids, I think, on average, five years later than their parents had them but they're also so you have a child you're looking for a house but you're 32 years old and college educated and so is your spouse as opposed to when your parents were you know one was college educated maybe and you were 26 uh, you've got more money and and so what we're finding is a big bifurcation in society but a lot of a bigger percentage of that group than ever before is buying their first house with Six-figure incomes and college education, just because they're older and um, they've done well. That that's been the big change. And but they were not buying because it was the, it was the urban. They were living urban and all that. That was probably the biggest shift. I don't really understand completely why this happened, Bruce. But why all the jobs went urban during this expansion? You, usually people flee to the suburbs and the jobs go suburban. They went urban. So that <laughs> kept everybody closer to the urban center where things are expensive. And that's been the big shift with COVID now is everybody's been given the free pass. If you're a college educated person to go work from wherever you want, and we're seeing the housing market boom on the, in the furthest out areas from the job center.
1: Well, it's interesting. That was kind of leading to my next question. One of the main thesis of, to big shifts ahead was that inside this block of 10 years, the, the group experienced something unique that altered how they viewed their future prospects. So in the spring of 2020, the world across all age groups was introduced to the coronavirus. So I'd like to ask you how you think the coronavirus will impact some of these categories that I want to I want to ask you next. So and both of this is going to be maybe both answers long and short term. So the coronavirus impact on impact on, on unemployment, short term and long term. Well, the searching is very obvious. I mean, the unemployment was
0: a historical low. So call it the, call it the virus or the recession. It's, it's bringing un- unemployment up dramatically. One of the things that I totally missed was um, most of the unemployment has been part-time workers and people who consider themselves temporarily unemployed. Like the hotel is still going to hire me back. The, uh, the, number The number of people that have been laid off permanently and consider themselves permanently out of work. I think it's only about three only about three million more than the February. I mean three million is a lot. But compared to the thirty million that's been reported that got unemployed, it's really only about ten percent. So uh, the the long term impact here is uh, I, I think it will probably take a while to get back to the full employment that we were at before, Bruce but I, I think we're getting back there faster than people think, than I, than I certainly thought, thought we would two months ago.
1: You know, when you, it's kind of like there's two different uh, takes on what's next. You've got the doctor that's been on TV the whole time and his comment was basically, oh yeah, we're, you know, this is not over. Matter of fact, we're about to have round two. And a lot of other people are going, okay, we're about done with the end of uh, the virus completely. Uh, or at least its impact on business and all that. So that'll be a very interesting thing, how that turns out, because probably like me, every day you're reminded that things aren't normal. I mean, you you like to go to baseball games, for one thing. So, right. you know, you watch a baseball game and there's not a soul in the stands. It, it just constantly reminds you, oh, yeah, this is not normal.
0: No, I, I agree with that. No, I think nope. I think we confuse expertise too much. Though I mean, the the doctor on TV referring to is an expert on medicine, not not the economy and not what local government policy is going to be.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I and I hope I hope that's the way I hope that's the way we lean. That's for sure. How would you uh, assess the federal government's response to that initial Great Depression, basically that we had for a month or two, you know, crazy levels of employment?
0: Yeah, so going back to the podcast, I guess you heard me on in, in March or early April. I, I was really trying to get my clients to think more negatively uh, because they thought everyone was going to be back to work and the virus would be gone by you know Easter. And like, yeah, yeah. what in the world makes you think that? But that 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 is what was driving the optimism. Now, it turned out that the optimists are right, but they're from all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and this goes to the answer to your question. The, the government stimulus here it was something I, that nobody had fathomed. So, so the stimulus that Bernanke did last time, it took him six years to increase the Fed's balance sheet by $3 trillion, unprecedented, going from $1 trillion to $4 trillion. Powell took it up $3 trillion in six months. And the IRS, which probably has to be the most bureaucratic government organization, slow moving, maybe except the DMV, (laughs) but um, somehow miraculously got $1,200 plus checks into virtually everybody's pocket. And the SBA, which is another, I've never got an SBA loan because I hear the bureaucracy there is just terrible, did 14 years worth of loans in 14 days. Uh, the, the government stimulus here was unbelievable, and in terms of getting people out and spending and stabilizing the economy and turning things around, I think it's been highly effective. Now, a lot of people think there's going to be consequences for all this, and I and I do too. I mean, if there were no consequences, they'd be doing this all the time, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, that's been the big the, the government response. Is the reason why the housing market is on
1: fire right now? Do you think there'll be a round two?
0: Well, both the Democrats and Republicans saying there's going to be. It's just a matter of what's in it, so yeah, and, and the timing of it. So I'm I'm assuming there's going to be a round two. Uh, I think I think even they have been stunned with how effective a lot of this has been. If there if there is one part of the economy that you and I understand that we should have gotten crushed in this, it's apartment. And even, you know, people are still paying the rent. I mean, somehow they've gotten enough money into people's pockets that the majority of them are still paying rent. One of my clients owns thousands of single-family rental homes. We surveyed his tenants and found out 17% of them were out of work, which isn't surprising. That's what you would expect given the national numbers. Yeah, he, right. he was collecting ninety six he collecting ninety six percent of the rent. And you've heard all these stories that people are living paycheck to paycheck. Well, people have been finding a way to pay the rent. And it has to be due to that stimulus.
1: I can't I can't fathom what else would have caused that to happen. I think the speed of that and the size of it, yeah, I, I was blown away by it. But I, I thought, Okay, well that that'll buy three months for sure. And um it was after that that I thought things would, would probably revert, and we'd have to have round two. Certainly by now, and we and we haven't had it. So that's I'm a little surprised that hasn't come yet. To be quite honest with you,
0: John, you said something real interesting right now. Um, you said that there was going to be some consequences of this. I'd be really interested to hear what you think
1: those consequences are going to be. The the consequences of giving people money they didn't make. Yeah.
0: Well, the consequence that everybody's worried about is inflation. And so for that, really? for that, that well, yeah, it's the, the money supply is increased. Yeah. Last time I looked, it was about 13%. And um, so there's 13% more cash out there and it's flowing into the stock market and it's flowing into housing. <laughs> but a lot of it well, is sitting in bank accounts. And, uh, you know, you don't see a lot, you're not going to see a lot of inflation until until people start spending it like crazy. And because you can't get on a plane and the retail centers are still closed and yada, 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 and people are still afraid, um, they're not. So that's, that's the big, the, the economic theory would say this should create a lot of inflation, um, but it hasn't. And the other thing that Raphael Bostic, the CEO of the Atlanta Fed, just did a really great interview on the uh, that Nick Timmerhaus did with him on the Wall Street Journal. He said one of the Fed lessons learned in this cycle is we were all taught that when unemployment get really low, got really low, people's wages would go through the roof and we'd have a lot of inflation, and that didn't happen this cycle. No. <laughs> so they think something is something has fundamentally changed where. We're unlikely to have a lot of inflation, and the the Fed is actually trying to create some inflation right now because
1: deflation is is really bad. Yeah. See, I I land on that. That's the consequence. Okay, I land on that square. To be honest with you, I think demographics. I can understand what they did created asset uh, increase. You know, people that have the stocks and the yeah and the real estate. And I think that's I think that's part of our society's problem is that there there's maybe they're viewing it as not an equal share of the good of the goodies. Uh so that's just that's just interesting. Um a lot of a lot of talk about, oh, we're about to have a giant, you know, giant foreclosure problem. What's your take on that? Well, I don't know why anybody would let the bank foreclose on
0: their house right now because there's equity in it. Um, Well, even if they did, it would get sold. Right, right. And you'd sell it in in a minute. Um, And what's different this cycle is that it looks like the lenders learned their lesson in the last cycle, and they've incorporated in the documents instructions to the servicers to see what you can do to modify the loan, because uh, that keeps somebody in the house, and it recovers more of the loan than going through the foreclosure process. So I'm I'm sure foreclosures are going to go up because some people are not going to be able to be modified. But I don't see anything coming like the last cycle for, for that reason. Well, for the past two years, all I've heard is to have a price hit, you would really need foreclosure inventory and REOs to dominate what's for sale.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Anyway, I, I don't think we're going to have a foreclosure problem.
0: That's going to do it for part one of our interview with I Survive Real Estate favorite, John Burns of John Burns Real Estate Consultant. Be sure you tune in next week for part two. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com.
1: The Norris Group originates
0: and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01. 01- Two one nine nine one one, Florida mortgage lender license one five seven seven, and NMLS license one six two three six six nine. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorresgroup.com and click the hard money tab.